You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Crown you Nazi bastards! <laughs> Seems this world got you down. You're feeling bad, bad, racial. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Oh, you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Has been an August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. And who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. It's a ragged tent where there ain't no trees. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel. I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the story is as follows. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood visits 1969 Los Angeles where everything is changing as TV star Rick Dalton and his longtime stunt double make their way around an industry they hardly recognize anymore. The ninth film from the writer-director features a large ensemble cast and multiple storylines and a tribute to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age. The film is starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Emile Hirsch, Margaret Qualley, Timothy Oliphant, Austin Butler, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Luke Perry, and Al Pacino. It is written and directed by, you guessed it, Quentin Tarantino. And joining me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Katie Schaefer. Hi. And Dan Bayer. Good morning, everybody. All righty. So the ninth film. And yes, it is the ninth film. I don't want to hear this whole <laughs> Kill Bill debacle, okay? It is the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time, in Hollywood, starring a very, very large cast, like we said before. I remember when this cast got announced, we were all super, super excited to see what Quentin Tarantino had in store with these actors. And I, I, I have to say, it's a very, very interesting one, at least for me. I'm not exactly sure how it is for the rest of you all, but I know that I have plenty to say on this one, both good and bad, and a little bit in the middle as well, as one does with a Quentin Tarantino film. 
But I can say that at 161 minutes, with the amount of content that is packed into this movie that I did not get my money's worth, because I do think that there is a lot to talk about with this one, a lot of very interesting themes and topics and aspects from a technical level as well. So whether you liked it, didn't like it, loathe it, whatever the case may be, I would be hard-pressed to find somebody that would say that they just, like, did not feel that they at least got something out of this one. But let's find out, shall we? Katie, let's start with you. What did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, you had to make me go first. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies first, you know? So I want to... Because this is Tarantino, I do want to have a little moment here to say, well, my feelings about the movie were not as good as people generally had. If you liked it, I totally think that's great. So with that said, I was really disappointed in this film. It felt very disjointed and uh, it had all of the negative ticks that Tarantino likes to put in his movies without a lot of the positive ones. And it meanders way too much and it felt like this was a movie where people were un- were afraid to be like no dude you need to edit this down so yeah I too have a lot to say but that's kind of my overall feelings about it you know and in all honesty too I think that there has been at least for me a general decline in Quentin Tarantino's movies since the passing of his longtime editor Sally Menke yeah. like it. and ever yeah. since Fred Raskin was brought on board for Django. You know, my biggest problem with Django lies in the third act of the movie. I don't feel that it's as strong as everything else that came before it necessarily. And I still maintain to this day that you could cut out the whole third act and the movie could end in the house with the bloody shootout. Still, you could have the standoff with Samuel Jackson and it would just be such a better movie, you know? Uh, Hatefully, we will get to that on another podcast review, but... Similar feelings in terms of you could trim some fat in there, I feel like. And this one... There's a lot of fat. Yeah. A good 20, 25 minutes, easy. I am convinced that somebody will upload to YouTube someday an edited version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it will play exactly the same, but I can almost guarantee you it will be better because it will be tighter, you know, more lean. Like his... uh, Honestly, like some... (laughs) Like, I kind of miss the Reservoir Dogs, uh, Quentin Tarantino. You know, the stripped-down yeah. movie-making. Everything feels so tight in his early movies. And, like, there's you almost don't have room to breathe. Everything is happening so fast and is so well-connected. And you can just sit and watch it and it, thoroughly enjoy everything that's going on screen and get swept up by it. And Yeah, it makes it exhilarating. As he's gone on, I feel like his movies have kind of... He started to well, I can just make whatever I want, so I'm just going to do all of my ideas instead of trimming it down to the best ones that work for that story he's trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Dan Baer, what about yourself? I (laughs) So, confession, I actually rearranged some things in my schedule specifically so that I could be on this podcast review and talk about this movie with all of you because after I saw it last night, I was struggling with it mightily and I didn't know I just wasn't sure about the movie about its strengths and weaknesses about what I thought about it I I couldn't I couldn't piece it together so I'm very excited to be here and have you guys help me figure out what my actual opinion on it is like 
like the concise Twitter length, what grade would you give this movie? Because other than that, I'm, I'm, ah, God, it's certainly lower tier Tarantino for me. Like that much. I definitely know it's too, it's too shaggy and lengthy and too unfocused, I think for it to be ranked among his best work. Uh, but who oh boy, I was really enjoying lots of it. And because I want to stay at least a little bit out of spoiler range for this part, the very last act act really blew that all to hell and really complicated my thinking about the rest of the movie. And that's where I'm at. I'm hoping I'll have a clearer picture when we're done with this. You know, a part of me while watching this uh, drew a very odd comparison, but hopefully once I say it, you, you all will understand what I mean here, in that I was thinking of Roma a lot while watching this movie because... Roma was a memory piece from Alfonso Cuaron's uh, childhood. And this is a memory piece from Quentin Tarantino's childhood. And in many ways, I felt like that's what he was kind of going for, was like that Fellini-esque, you know, memory piece type movie. But it's not a memory he actually has. And that's the thing that's so (laughs) weird about it, too, is that it's also the revisionist history. It's also like... His contemporary uh, mindset on what's going on in the film industry today and where he's at in his own career. And I think people have definitely rightfully uh, have stated that this is his most personal film. And I get that part of it. And I don't think there's any denying that. However, I think people are confusing his most personal with his most mature and best and I, I don't see that at all. Yeah, the, those two things are not mutually exclusive. And while it's definitely it's his most personal film, because I don't think he's made a film that's personal in any way, pretty much, until this point. Um, it, so, Lord, that doesn't mean that it's it has the same maturity as a lot of his early work that Katie was talking about. You know, mm-hmm. the, the leanness, the purity of focus that um, Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill and stuff like that has. There seems to be a lot of let's throw shit on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I was going to say like, it's yes. not been it's not even as formally controlled as something like Death Proof, which is just like a machine. Um, this is really I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with it, y'all. That's fine. Let's uh, let's get Josh Parham starts and see if uh, we can, you know, kind of weave through this. Josh, what do you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I have to say, I almost want to apologize for our podcast listeners right now, because I feel like so many of them are listening to this, wanting to hear us just gush about this movie. And I do have things to gush about, just an FYI. Yeah, I do. I do have some things. And, and that's great. I'm, I'm happy for you. <laughs> yes. It was like such a good for you. <laughs> oh, God. Because for me, this movie was kind of intolerable for me. And it's and that breaks my heart because I'm a huge Tarantino fan. I love most of his movies. I am the weirdo that loves the hateful eight and defends that. But this movie, I get that it didn't really want to go in for a huge plot. But it is so meandering and it is so 
listless in its pacing and just was a great struggle for me to connect to a lot of things happening in this film. There are a couple things in it that are sort of interesting. There are performances that I do like. There's certain sequences that I think are well done, but I think it adds up to something that just was not that interesting to me. And for two hours and 40 minutes, that was a really long slog to get through. So unfortunately, I really did not get into this movie. Okay. Thank God it's not just me. No, no, no. I I have heard a lot of split reactions across the board. Uh, Definitely more leaning positive than negative, but the dissenters are out there. You know, that's I I, I think that they are out in full force. And it's not so much uh, it's not so much we don't like Quentin Tarantino because he is misogynistic towards women and so on and so forth. It's more of, hey, you know what? Quentin Tarantino has set a bar for himself. With his filmography. And if you're going to compare this to earlier work like Inglorious Bastards or Pulp Fiction, I think that there is an argument to be made, obviously, that this pales in comparison to those movies. And I think a lar- large part, part of that has to do with uh, two things. One is the unfocused nature of the storytelling. The focus on DiCaprio and Pitt, I think, is clear. I think it is strong. And I think everything that goes into those two characters actually works. Their relationship, the performances from DiCaprio and Pitt, uh, the characterization, the contrast in the two men's lives, all of that I think is really, really well done and speaks a lot to the themes of the film as well. So that's probably like my most enjoyable aspect of it. However, there are so many scenes, countless scenes that go on and on and on like i love seeing al pacino on screen you know obviously chewing up the dialogue and having fun with dicaprio but does that scene need to really go on for i think it was like eight ten minutes his first scene the introduction yeah oh god it was and just the back and forth between them just didn't really have the same like energy and rhythm that you get in his other movies and I think that's the biggest element that I found missing from this film is even in the quote-unquote lesser Tarantino movies, you still can kind of enjoy the the rapport between the characters and that rich dialogue that he has. And I don't think really any of that is here. I can't really think of a scene that feels like it has that kind of patented Tarantino slick uh, dialogue to it. it. It just seemed like that was really missing from this movie. Yeah. I, felt I can same. think of only one scene in which that's the case, but um, this Al Pacino scene in the beginning, that was one of the most poorly done exposition dumps I think I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, awful. And it's so unnecessary. You could have cut Al Pacino scenes from that movie and just used like two sentences from the narrator to explain why all of a sudden he goes to Italy and starts filming Italian films. That. Yeah, it's like Tarantino was so excited about having Al Pacino. And like, I was kind of shocked that Pacino has never been in a Tarantino movie before. And he's great fun in it, but like, totally unnecessary. And I think we could like go down the cast here. And I think that you could probably look at almost everyone in this, like Timothy Oliphant, Bruce Dern, Dakota Fanning, Emile Hirsch. It almost feels like they uh, – uh, wait, uh, who, who was the biggest one? No, it just was so unnecessary. Um, 
the guy from Homeland who plays Steve McQueen. Oh, Damian, Damian Lewis. Lewis. That was What terrible. was the point of having that if he's only going to be in one scene in a movie, barely say anything, and it's like... I, there's a there's a lot of stuff that's in here that just doesn't serve the story and <clears throat> doesn't serve the story, doesn't serve the character arcs um, that well for DiCaprio and Pitt. <sighs> you know, I can't deny that I still had fun with this movie because when it was working at points, it, it really was working for me. You know, there's some cheap manipulation. I, oh, oh, <laughs> People who have been listening to the podcast know I've been, you know, really, really on top of this one lately. There's this ongoing trend in movies where animals are being used for audience manipulation. And for the love of God, if that is not the best dog I have seen in a movie in recent times, I don't know what is. But once again, another animal being used to manipulate our emotions, I feel like. And it's just something that I think filmmakers are leaning on way too much lately. That is one (laughs) well-trained dog (laughs) there was a lot of that in this movie there were times like when i walked out i kept thinking well that was a really cheap ending and if it was and i won't tell what it is or anything no no we're not going to reveal it here however i think anyone that is familiar with quentin tarantino can guess the ending just from the trailer alone at least i did yeah me too i i was i wasn't sure how he was going to do it but i knew where we were going to end the film and that was annoying to me actually because Think back to Bastards for a minute and how surprising that was and how daring and how Quentin Tarantino-esque, like only Quentin Tarantino would do something like that. And I feel like I'm at a point now where I am pretty able to predict what I'm going to get in a Quentin Tarantino film. And that is actually robbing me of the experience of watching a Quentin Tarantino film, which has been built so much on his ability to surprise us. So... When I watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the most surprising element to it is that it's his most, I'm sorry, his least violent film. Um, No Samuel L. Jackson, from what I could tell, and no uh, utterances of the horrible N-word that is obviously something that he leans on a lot in his movies. It's like, yeah, but that, do I care? You know what I mean? I felt like his, this was a movie where he, Almost takes a chance and then takes a step back. Like, I would think mm-hmm. there need to be any violence in this movie. Because the really interesting part for me was the relationship between the two men. Like, yes. And, and watching how that develops and them dealing with these changes as they grow older. And, like, that was the part that caught me. And I was like, oh, let's explore this. Let's get into this. But then it's like he wasn't quite sure how to end it. And he wanted to have Sharon Tate in the movie because it's obvious he very much loves Sharon Tate. And he so he's like, oh, well, we'll just put this at the end and that takes care of it. But it never resolves any of their emotional uh, any of the emotional setup in the movie. And so it's like, just ride with it, dude. Take the chance. Make a movie that's different than what's come before, because you should grow as a filmmaker and make, you know, do something that we've never seen from you before. But I feel like he is very consciously aware of what his audience expects from him now. And he is catering to that. And it, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like, oh, I, I'm my own brand and this is what my brand represents. So my audience, when they go see one of my movies, they are expecting these things and I need to deliver on that. And 
I'm like channeling my own Quentin Tarantino right now. Uh, <laughs> I need to deliver on that, and I need to give my audience exactly what they expect from me. I got to give it to them. <laughs> um, it, it, but that, and that's that's what I think is the fault of the movie almost is that the moments, Katie, that we haven't seen from him before, like this buddy relationship between DiCaprio and Pitt that leans so heavily on Rick Dalton's insecurity and how much he leans on Brad Pitt for uh, that emotion to be that emotional rock for him. But at the same time, it's very weird because there are moments in the movie where uh, you can tell he like completely disregards him. And there are moments where he does go to bat for him and really defends him. And then there are times where he does treat him like he's like a second class citizen to him, obviously, you know, it's it, it's a very unique relationship. And it was by far my favorite aspect of the movie. And just to kind of uh, once again, go off of the comments that you made about uh, Margot Robbie and Sharon Tate's character in this or rather lack of character. Really? I was about to yes. say what Sharon Tate character in this movie because the there is no doll? character. I understand that she's meant to be a symbol for uh, the theme that he's going for here of the passing of the uh, of of time and change and so on and so forth. Like, I get that aspect of it, but I can't help but feel this movie would have been 50 times better if she was not a symbol and instead she was a character and she had actual dialogue scenes with the other male co-stars in this movie. Or if the ending was different. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know we're not going to talk about the ending, but oh, man, there are things about the ending that actually really make me very upset, particularly with how the Sharon Tate character is used throughout this film. I The ending made me actively, actively upset. And like, I kind of need to talk about it for a minute because for me, it's the crux of the whole movie and what he does. Try not to give spoilers. I'm just going to say what he does for the last I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of this movie made me more uncomfortable than anything he has done in any of his other movies. And that's saying something. This partially because the rest of the movie before this is really like laconic and shaggy dog and kind of a hangout movie. This is the most impactful violence I've ever seen in a Tarantino film. And it totally jolts the movie awake. And at first, I was just like, oh, oh, this this is really something. And then... <sighs> he takes it too far. I don't think he takes it too far. He goes in a direction with it. I, Not a spoiler, but kind of a spoiler. It becomes comically absurd. Yes. And... Mm, I agree. You know, every... You have to laugh at it because it's so comically absurd. Yep. And at the same time, I'm sitting there going like, but what's happening here is actually horrible. Like, we should be feeling very bad about what's going on here. Make no mistake. And instead, we're laughing. And because these are two fictionalized characters, unlike Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, yeah. you can literally do anything. And what he does do... Instead, it, it, it felt cheap. It felt unbelievable to me. It felt gratuitous. I actually was a, I was a mixture of both uncomfortable and entertained while watching it. It just made me angry. I didn't know how to feel when it was over. Yeah, because my audience clearly loved it. And I think my reaction to it was I was feeding off of the energy of the audience. 
But internally, I felt that it was unnecessary. I actually think the movie would have been stronger had it not occurred. 100%. Yeah. I'm not even saying something violent had to occur, like the alternative. All I'm saying is, why not go with a more tragic and more mature decision? Instead, this is like what I'm saying. He catered, I think, too much to his audience and gave them, I think, exactly what they are expecting. And in the end, it ends up becoming uh, dull because it's not as surprising. And it's honestly just not as clever as it was the um, last times in Glorious Bastards and Django. I don't think that this is um, necessarily him playing to the audience. I think that's very much the story he wanted to tell. I think he very much wanted to pull a redeem Sharon Tate or that's not the right word, but you kind of get what I'm saying, I think. Um, He wanted to change the story of Sharon Tate's life. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to revitalize her and write this love letter to her and well then why not make her a more important character in the story that's the thing and like the the what he does at the ending that's when i was like i don't even know what this movie is about anymore i think it completely muddles the intent it's so different from what came before and basically changes i think the meaning of the movie up to that point i just don't know what to think about it well what i think that he is going for um and and the thing that i was getting a lot from the movie until the ending. And this is stuff that I like. I do like that it is about the time when Hollywood's golden age is ending and everything about the industry is changing. And Rick Dalton is transitioning from television to cinema and it's not going as well for him and he's at a crossroads in his life. And I like how this bleeds into both the characters of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth where Rick Dalton once had everything and now he, I'm sorry, he still has everything, but he feels like he has nothing and Cliff Booth has nothing, but he feels like he's got everything and he's just so content with uh, his life being what it is. And I love the contrast between the two men. I love that it also weaves its way into the contrast of the changing of the times and also what Tarantino is probably experiencing as a filmmaker in the digital age where he can feel the industry passing him by and his time is finite. It's not infinite necessarily i mean for all we know this could be his last film i highly doubt it i think he's gonna make his 10 like he has promised uh but as a filmmaker at a crossroads in his life that part of the movie was the stuff that was really resonating with me and how it bled into those two characters i think the strongest movie is at its strongest when we see rick having his meltdowns (laughs) <laughs> and I, I will say that either Tarantino is a severe alcoholic or he is very close with someone who is because the little speech he gives that's totally this is something that happens in the credits or in the trailers oh when amazing. he has that breakdown and is criticizing himself for not making it happen and all of this. He's not pulling out the good scene that he wants. He is absolutely spot on perfect on how you describe yourself and how you act as an alcoholic and that little speech he gives himself, oh, we're never going to do this again, you know? Yeah. And, then, and, then, and then immediately, oh, I'll better have a little bit just to make sure it works. It's just like, oh my God. And that part is so good and feels so personal from him. One other contrast there with DiCaprio and Pitt that I like about this is DiCaprio, I feel like as an actor here, is doing something new that we haven't seen him do before 
with the stuttering, with the coughing, the twitching, and all the other things dealing with the uh, the alcoholism, the insecurity. And that's new. It's one of his best performances. And Brad Pitt, what Tarantino's doing with Brad Pitt is he's actually going back to the Brad Pitt of old, like Thelma and Louise. Uh, Brad Pitt, where he's got the shirt off and he's just so cool. And he is very cool. Like, once again, like this whole thing that he leans into with both of these characters and how to utilize these two actors, I I, I think that is the master stroke. And I wish that was more of the focus because when he's just so self aware of who Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are, uh, both as people and as movie stars. And he perfectly knows how to exploit that, I think. At least there's a self-awareness there that I really appreciated. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think both of them are really good in this film. My preference is slightly for DiCaprio, though, because every time he's on screen, he just really delivers a much more layered performance than I think you would expect from this character. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm not a big fan of this movie overall, I think DiCaprio, this really is one of his better performances. I think he really does a great job in this film. Especially in the TV pilot where he's playing the villain and oh, he does oh the scene. God, that's the best. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Even I love him in that. But that... A, Go ahead, well, Josh. It is great, although it is a little weird that this like TV show in the 60s is being filmed like a auteur like high budget Western movie that was a little odd to me, but oh, I guess God. that was just a quirk of yeah. of Tarantino's like alternate history. Yeah, because that's not what would have gone down. <laughs> no, it's a television show. Like, and anyone who watches TV from that era, having as someone who has watched a lot of it, yeah. oh no, it was bang, 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 bang. We make these and we move on. If you make a mistake, whatever, the audience won't notice. Which is the crazy thing because like the first couple of scenes in the movie, like when they have the fake the trailers and the um or the the clips of the episodes, like those are so perfectly done. Yeah. They're they're like dead on. And then we go into the actual filming of one and I'm like, that this feels off. Is he making a movie or a TV show? I was legitimately confused at one point. Is wait, are I actually did not know if I had missed something if he was actually making a movie. <laughs> It, I, I'm at two sides here. I like that that whole sequence plays out in full up until the moment where DiCaprio doesn't remember his line and he has to ask for it and it takes you out because leading up to it, you're so, so riveted by DiCaprio's uh, dual performance, right, as an actor uh, playing an actor and doing this scene here. And it just it for me it made me realize uh how badly i really really miss seeing leonardo dicaprio on screen these past 4 years and i'm just so so happy to have him back i just missed him having fun yeah, yeah. you know after you know <laughs> the famous <laughs> talked about the revenant very recently <laughs> and <laughs> how that movie is just like him you see him working for it in every frame and taking himself deathly seriously it's just nice to see him enjoying himself again and you know becoming a character as opposed to you know a human robot and his scene with uh uh, Marabella, the kid. Oh, God. Awesome. It's so fantastic. 
I love, love him that. in that movie, but I did wonder as I was watching, I was like, so Tarantino has never met a child this age is what I'm hearing here because <laughs> there are no children that act like that. As not even one, child actors. No, I was like, that is, yeah. that is not a person. That is just a pretend. And, and it's fine. It works because she is just like a something for him to bounce Leo off of. Yeah. That's, she isn't, She's also not really a character. She's there to be to react to him, so I could let it go. But it was weird to have some people in it. This is how he does things, you know. It was weird to have some people in it who are genuine characters who kind of feel like they have their own life, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then there's characters in it that are obviously just either a mirror or like Sharon Tate is a paper doll that he's just moving around on screen. It was a weird mishmash of how he develops all of the characters in this film. I did appreciate that the characters in this film were like actual real people again, because I feel like the characters that he has written uh, over his last couple of movies have been obviously more fantastical cartoonish characters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's especially true of his last movie, hateful eight. Um, I think on purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I genuinely got the feeling sometimes like this was a lot like Pulp Fiction to a certain degree and how the conversations felt organic. They felt normal. Um, They felt like like, actual people having actual dialogue that wasn't trying to be cool. And it's weird, too, because I know you I know that there was some comments before about how the dialogue in this just didn't have the same zing to it or didn't have those memorable lines. And I think that's kind of part of what I'm getting at here in the sense that it just felt very natural and didn't have that Tarantino, uh, you know, kinetic energy to it. You know what I mean? But, but Which, why watch a Tarantino movie then? Like, that's isn't that what you expect? And I can get that, like, yeah, he's trying something different. He wants to go for something more lackadaisical. But, like, I still feel, want to feel like that there is a pull to this story, a pull to these characters, a kinetic energy going through this story, even if it doesn't have that much of a story really in there. And just most of that felt so empty to me. And most of the conversations between these characters just did not really invest me to the point where I think the movie wanted me to get invested. It felt like almost he made this movie. I know I said before he was catering to his audience, but it felt like, once again, like, Rick Dolan's at a crossroads. It almost seems like while watching this, like Quentin Tarantino is also at a crossroads where he's partly writing this movie for himself and he's also trying to write it for his audience as well and it just you can get i i feel like i could get the sense of that while watching it where the moments where it was more personal like the radio cues in the car and how he talks about a lot of memories he has of la is sitting in his dad's car and just driving through Los Angeles and there's so many scenes that take place inside of a car and just characters talking I, I actually I really like all of that stuff, even though it's not what I would normally go to a Quentin Tarantino movie to see. But once again, I go to a Quentin Tarantino movie to be surprised. So when I see the predictable, in my opinion, ending and also too, I am sick and tired of this. I, and I, I might get flack for this. I am sick and tired of him constantly, constantly, constantly 
doing something with the Western genre in his movies. I want him to move to another genre for the love of God. I feel like he said everything he's ever wanted to say about it. And I, I just need him to do something different that feels fresh, that feels new and has the ability to surprise me again. Cause now it just feels like he's either just hammering it into our brains that this is a dying genre and it's not like it used to be. And I'm just going to keep on writing it so that until the world recognizes how great it is, or he's just getting lazy and he doesn't know how to do anything else. I don't know which one it is, but I too feel that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me neither. I mean, like, it. I don't mind it because you know we don't we don't get many westerns nowadays. But maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah, like people talk all the time about like wanting to see Quentin Tarantino do another type of genre, like like a musical or a horror or a historical epic or just something. And it's always constantly Westerns. And then when he leans a little bit into World War II again with this, I was like, what? Like, you did this already in Bastards. I, like, Adam, yeah. do something different. I did kind of love that that little clip of the great what escape. It was, the 14 fists of. Oh, oh yeah. His with the flamethrower. This is what the actual grindhouse version of Inglorious Bastards might have looked like. Well, like that, <laughs> that, that was, was kind another. Of problem yeah. I had with the film is his incessant um, cl- clips of movies and of fake movies and yeah. fake TV shows. I was like, dude, if you could you don't need to give us all of these examples. You just want to show us like your favorite ideas. And like that clip from The Great Escape that where they just kind of put DiCaprio in there that I was like no, there's a reason they cast Steve McQueen in this and like you can't then show DiCaprio giving this performance and trying to sell it like it was just really badly done in my opinion and if you had cut all of those unnecessary and and especially unnecessarily long clips of all of his ideas about what old TV should have been like we would have it would have been a much more tolerable length I but oh god can we talk about the editing though now that you mention it because Oof! I for well, I mean, first of all, there is one sequence here where it's absolutely fantastic. The um, the long sequence at the movie ranch. Yes, yes, that is I to me that is far and away the best part of this because movie. Because that Holy character word. is completely fictional, and he is, in my opinion expendable and once again we expect quentin tarantino to possibly surprise us and (laughs) let's just throw this out there this wouldn't be the first time that brad pitt has been unexpectedly killed in a movie for an after reading (laughs) i was constantly on the edge of my seat and i was like yes this is the suspense this is the stuff i love from tarantino and it kept building and building and building and it was that was excellent i totally agree with you but that was that was fantastic that was the only sequence that felt like peak tarantino you know, that felt like classic, you know, this is the um, the card game in Inglorious Bastards. This is, you know, the, um, the uh, scene, in Pulp Fiction. scene in Pulp Fiction. Like yep. these are this is the that that classic whatever um, X factor magic thing he has. Like this is that. But there are so many moments where like the entire rest of the movie basically where that magic is just in very short supply it's it's not gone entirely i don't think but it's in very short supply um the the in particular there was that one scene when he is talking with timothy oliphant where for no reason at all there are these jump cuts that i was it i would i mean 
maybe I was falling asleep and maybe it jolted me awake, but it was definitely like, what, what the fuck are you doing? Did, did the movie skip? Did, did we yeah. miss something? And like, I saw this on 35 what? millimeter. So yeah. that is exactly what I thought. I was like, did, did this projectionist not know what they're doing or is this on purpose? No, yeah. no, I saw it too. There were a couple of times where scene transitions would abruptly cut from what was going on. Like I remember there's one of Sharon Tate dancing at um, the Playboy Mansion and it just kind of abruptly yeah. cuts like with the music and everything to the next scene. And I, I just was like, okay, that was a choice. I don't really get it. <laughs> there's no rhythm to it. There's no rhyme to it. It, it, it makes no sense. And even if at you know, those things are supposed to be a, an homage to whatever kind of movies at this time that Tarantino grew up loving. It does not work. No. I, and I would anyway, you know, you know, the, uh, uh, the, I can't remember what they're called. Oh my gosh. But you know, like the dots and the, um, the, the, the Signal circle turns. in the corner of the screen oh, that signifies yeah, yeah. the real change. Yes, yeah. Yes. A part of me kind of hopes that when they release the Blu-ray that that is kind of still there and not just something that you get in the theatrical experience of watching this in 35 millimeter, you know, and projected. Uh, because I actually felt that that was almost like that was part of the movie, you know, part of the experience of watching the movie was knowing that those real changes were coming and knowing that it was shot on film. It's being projected on film. And I know that's not going to happen. I know it's going to be this HD digitized version that we'll get when it gets its home video release. But I, I actually felt that more so than Hateful Eight, uh, seeing this shot on film, projected on film, and being in this time and, and about the subject matter, it, it was more fitting than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to say, do we actually think like this movie has good to great cinematography. I, you know, I was actually kind of let down I by was that. let down by it. I was. I would say good. I would not say great. I would say meh. Wasn't yeah. terrible, but it wasn't good. It was just like, what is this? This is okay, I guess. And it was in an area where you can get, I mean, we all know LA has some amazing views, some amazing scenery, and they're supposed to live up in the Hollywood Hills. like, And there's just none of that. Just none of that. The best scenes we get are the driving scenes. I totally agree with what you said earlier, Matt. The yeah. going through LA and the neon and all of that, that all looks really well done. But everything else, except possibly the scene um, where he's at Spawn Ranch, it just feels dull. The costumes, the music, and the art direction, in my opinion, are fully immersive into the time period. And I think those technicals are the film's best. I am going to be banging the drum for this for best costume design. Like, the entire rest of the year, the costumes are fantastic. I think the set decorating was just, that was perfect for me. Everything. You could fall into the time period with all of that. But the cinematography is, it left something for me to be desired for me only because... I get what he was going for because he was going for the aesthetic of the time period. And so there's no stylized lighting. There's, you know, because like you watch Bastards and there are moments that harken back to uh, classic cinema. But yet it still has those very beautiful, gorgeous, uh, stylized shots that, you know, you would do in 2009. You know what I mean? This movie, I was kind of expecting uh, that. But what I didn't expect was I didn't expect Robert Richardson to really keep the 
visual aesthetic that he did, I think the most interesting part of it was maybe the, tri- the this stuff that was shot in black and white and showing the clips from the TV shows, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the different film stock and such. And, you know, like we said before, the uh, World War II uh, movie that uh, he stars in, not Great Escape, you know, the, the fictionalized one, yeah. you know, where you can clearly see the film stock changes. Like, that stuff was interesting, but I would not call this movie aesthetically beautiful where I would be predicting it for a Best Cinematography nomination at the end of the year. No, I mean, there are some great tracking shots, but it's nothing... Nothing remarkable. It was uninspiring. Yeah. Yeah, it just was like, it's not bad, but I think, again, when you talk about the level of work that both Tarantino and Robert Richardson bring to their films, Hmm. it did feel a little flat to me. And that was a bit disappointing. It reminded me a little bit of the dirty and gritty style of Reservoir Dogs at times. Yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. But Pulp Fiction still kind of retains that, but it has such a more stylized and purposeful way that the shots are framed and uh, why the camera is placed, you know, here instead of here to illustrate certain characters and so on and so forth. And maybe I might discover this with rewatches and with time that there was some more deliberate choices on their part. But I think he was going for the style that was, I want to shoot this like it was 1969. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which is fine. Yeah. But he doesn't fully commit to it. Yeah. And that's yeah. frustrating. It's Very frustrating. An art teacher I had for photography once told me that, like, because I, I made some blurry pictures and I said, well, I did this on purpose for this reason. He's like, well, you didn't do a good enough job. He's like, either it's got to be all the way so mm. that people know you're doing it on purpose or not at all. If you go halfway, people just think you're lazy. Yeah. And, or they think that, it's a mistake. Yep, and that is kind of how this movie felt to me a lot of the time. It was like, did you do this on purpose, or was this just kind of an a, an accident? One thing that I really did love with the cinematography was the sequence where they go around L.A. in the evening as all the places are turning on their neon lights. Yeah. I really liked that. Um, but other than that, <laughs> there's a lot of moments in this movie, uh, that I, like I said, I think maybe with a rewatch will gain a little bit more appreciation, mm-hmm. but I would not rank this high in terms of Tarantino's like most pleasing films to look at. No, uh, to which it's not ugly. No, it's not bad. It's just like Josh said, it's just like, yeah. it's, it's good. It's good. It's fine. Yeah. Right. It's aggressively fine. Yeah. Yes. So I'm I'm at a point now where I don't have like kind of a connecting tissue necessarily. I've got like just bullet points of certain things that I want to talk about. So I think this is the time where we'll go to uh, final thoughts. So something that we didn't touch upon that you want to bring up, I pass it off to Josh Parham first. Final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, well, there's two very quick things I want to mention. Uh, yep. One, I really hate that. Kurt Russell is both a character in the film and the narrator. I really, really hate that decision. Yeah. yeah. It just bothered me so much. Um, was that, Samuel L. Jackson really not available to record a few lines? Yeah, it just added like. more weight to his character that wasn't there, and then it was just confusing, and I, I didn't like that decision. And the other thing is just kind of circling back to that scene at the ranch with uh, the Manson family, which I think – most of us seem to agree is the highlight or at least one of the highlights to the film. Another thing that I really liked is that I just really got into the fact that this was at like a place to shoot movies 
And I felt like Tarantino was actually kind of playing around with some Western iconography too, that I thought was really interesting in the way that like Tex rides in on that horse and in that town, it kind of would in any other movie would be the moment where the good guy comes in to rescue uh, the townspeople from the villain. And to see that being played in this different perspective, I thought was very interesting. And it was the only time to me really where the movie actually got interesting with the language of film that it was working with. So I really did want to highlight that moment because it was really one of the few times I actually thought, okay, Tarantino, you're actually kind of surprising me and engaging me in a way that none of the rest of this movie really is doing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Katie, what about you? Okay. So things we didn't touch on. So I'm going to go with my bad first. Um, I, there are parts of this movie that made me incredibly uncomfortable and upset and not in the way that you know, some movies do, and it's okay. Like Jeremy Saulnier's films make me horrifically upset, but they're still good, and he's still a great filmmaker, and they can still be good choices. This movie did not do that. Um, the end, in particular, how he treats Sharon Tate in the film as the symbol, <clears throat> where she she just feels masturbatory to me in this because she's never given any real lines. He focuses a lot on her, on her ass and her feet and her, Oh, you know, the feet, her face. And she is so, and I love Margot Robbie. And I will say the scene with her in the movie theater is a is, plus. Yeah. I loved that. Absolutely. But either give us more Sharon Tate or don't have her in the movie at all, because this feels like just pointless and kind of, cheap because you're pulling her in as a way to like the Manson stuff that's in there feels like it's only in there to get people to come to the theater to see what Tarantino's going to do with the Manson family and that yeah. was disgusting especially the end and how he treats women in this film was mm. upsetting yep I, yes I felt and it's all tied to the end though like it's all that last 20 minutes yep Yep. Throughout the rest, I was just like, meh, this is what he does with his female characters yeah. most of the time. So whatever. But yeah, that end scene was just enraging for me to watch because it felt it felt nasty and mean. And like it it was a symbol towards something else going on in his life. Something I constantly say about like Woody Allen, for example, is I'm okay with Woody Allen movies for the most part. But when Woody writes something in his screenplay that triggers the memory of why we all have this thing against Woody Allen, it's like, why in God's name would you would you deliberately put yourself in that situation? And I always reference, it's always the older man dating a younger woman. And it's like, why are you adding this stuff into your screenplays yep. all the time? <laughs> Stop it, for the love of God. Yeah. And what Tarantino does here is obviously, yes, that ending. Uh, and I know people had problems with it in Hateful Eight, and it just continues here. But there's another thing, and this is one of my bullet points that happens here, that I thought was so unnecessary and so pointless. And this actually got me more mad than the ending. And it has something to do with Cliff Booth's wife. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that completely unnecessary. It has yep. no payoff, and I don't know what purpose it actually serves. And it really, really just upset me because I was like, Tarantino, you are not helping yourself, sir. <laughs> yep. It felt like yeah. because of what happened, certain people look at him in a different way. 
but he makes this guy out to be a hero. And so we're supposed yeah. to know this mm. fact about him and still find him likable. And that feels very much like at the audience. This yeah. is a, a nasty response to Tarantino's own issues with his personal life mm-hmm. and his choices in the past as a director with his female characters. And that I really I didn't care for it. And it felt mean. And so that's the bad. The good. Oh, there's good. There's good. I'm not going to be that guy who has nothing good to say. Um, I do think that the music, he continues to, when it's modern, when he makes a modern film, the music choices he makes are perfection. The soundtrack of this movie, I will probably buy it because I love 60s music. He captures Mm. some really great stuff. Like, it was enjoyable to listen to just on while I was watching it. And I do think DiCaprio and the relationship between the two of them is the strongest part of the movie. And I do maintain there's a good movie in here, but it just wasn't the one that came to the screen. In my opinion, there are things you can edit out. I'm telling you, there is a YouTube version of this that somebody will do. Where, I'll watch that. Yeah. I, I, I challenge anyone that's listening to this. If you can, when this movie comes out, take out a good 20 minutes. Um, hell, keep the ending in there. I don't care. But take out like the Brad Pitt thing I mentioned before and like a few other scenes that just go on for way too long for no reason, serve no purpose to the story whatsoever. And I can almost guarantee that version of this movie is better. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Dan Bear. I look, I for me, really, it all comes down to that last 20 minutes up until that point. I was mostly enjoying the movie. Um, it I, like I said, I don't think it's top tier Tarantino, but there's a lot of really good stuff here. And it's typically entertaining and fun. And then we get to those last 20 minutes. And the movie up until that point had seemed like. Tarantino, you know, doing his, oh, like, you know, elegy for this, you know, I'm going to say like dying time in history that he is very much in love with, even though maybe he shouldn't be. Um, But uh, that ending comes and I'm just like, well, what were you trying to say? This doesn't make sense. This does not feel of a piece with yeah. everything else that you were trying to do. And in, in every way it makes the movie worse, like by a large margin, mm-hmm. large margin. Like I, it, it was upsetting how much that final 20 minutes completely changed my perception of this movie and what he was trying to do with it because it just didn't uh, it it didn't work and it was so that end that ending i'm sure he you know probably he probably loves it and thinks you know he's doing something really meaningful and powerful or whatever but instead oh my god it's so it is so misogynistic that ending that it completely erases anything that he was doing before that was, you know, just what he does. Let let me, let me put it to you this way. Uh, And this is another one of my points here. Damon Harriman is cast as Charles Manson in this. And he's also playing Charles Manson in Mindhunter uh, for the record. Mm -hmm. He has one scene in the movie and I can guarantee you substitute uh, the people in the end 
with this actor and this character, and the entire context, I think, of the ending completely changes. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, There's that no all question. of the blame yeah. is put on those characters at the end, and none of it is placed on the person who, in the public consciousness and legally, was held responsible for what happened. Yeah. Is disgusting to me but and like, and god bless maya hawk for getting the hell out of there yeah. so that we didn't have yeah. to suffer through uh <laughs> that yeah. after we fell in love with her in stranger things season three uh, <laughs> yeah but i will say though the problem that i have with kind of those moments in that ending is that it as we talked about it being comical it really undercut the great menace and tension that was set up earlier with all of those characters and that was so frustrating to me and so disappointing that these people that had already been established as being rather intimidating and scary now were like cartoon characters at the end. And that was another part that was like, what are we doing? What, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Um, it's amazing to me how many people are in this movie. And I, 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 I'll tell you, I struggle to identify some people. Um, as I'm looking at the cast list here, it's like, we mentioned before uh, Damian Lewis, but Scoot McNary is in this. Clifton Collins Jr. is in this. Uh, Michael Madsen has a pretty recognizable moment. Uh, yep. Zoe Bell pops in at one point. Uh, Lena Dunham pops in at one point. <laughs> it's like there's so many people in this movie because it's like clear that they just want to all be a part of a Quentin Tarantino film. And it's a shame that he they, they're, they're all just extended or brief cameos. You know, when you get this level of talent yeah. together. I will say, though, like, I really loved Margaret Qualley and really, really loved Dakota Fanning in this. Yes. Yeah, the little yeah. bit we get of them is great. I agree. I wish there had been more. They were absolutely fantastic. And Margaret Qualley has um, a Tarantino feed shot uh, for the ages. I'm yep. just going to throw that out there. Uh, Several. <laughs> whether, whether that's your cup of tea or not, it's it's there and it is what it is and I, whatever, you know? I, I mean, I will say, not that I enjoy the, the feet stuff in his movies, but I, I almost sort of appreciate that now Tarantino kind of is at the point of like, you know what? I'm not even going to pretend like people don't know that I have this fetish. Like, here it is. We'll yep. just drop all yeah. the pretense. You're going to get feet. You know I'm in the feet. We're just going to do this <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I can't fault him for that. I just think it's it, he usually puts it in there and it's just like, okay, dude, I know. We yeah. get it. We get it. Yeah. Usually it's a little bit more stylishly uh, implemented in the films in the past, but now he's just like, I don't care. I want feet. We're just going to deal with having feet in the movie. Yeah. I love it. Own it. Don't <laughs> let anybody yuck your yum, Quentin. Right. Right. Exactly. That's how I feel, but it's also like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have two last points that I want to bring up. One is, I got to admit, and I wish there was more, I genuinely loved the Bruce Lee scene. I'm mixed on that scene. I, me, too. me too. I enjoyed it. <sighs> it's very entertaining and fun, but like you have, he is the one ethnic minority in the whole movie, I think. Yep. And for it to be such a ridiculous, ridiculous stereotype is well, uh, and the well, insult issue, Bruce Lee like that is kind of yeah. I'm actually surprised I was really surprised that and not in a good way that because I was enjoying uh, watching uh, you know this actor play Bruce Lee and I was hoping we were going to get more scenes and I was hoping that he was going to be utilized a, more in the movie 
and unfortunately, he isn't. And I and that that kind of ruined it for me. But I have to say, like the stuff of him just saying stuff like, "He never beat me," <laughs> like was really really funny to me. Yeah, I, I loved all that. I think for me though, like I don't have as much of an issue with like the whole. This is an insult to Bruce Lee because the kind of button to that scene sort of negates everything that came before it. And that yeah. was the frustrating yeah. thing for me because then it yeah. just sort of felt like it was completely like, why useless. It, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once again, it, it goes back to we could trim this, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I like that actor. I thought he was doing a really good job. He was. And, he was. Yeah. And yeah to, to be honest with you, I thought that he should have showed up at the end like i agree did great you know <laughs> that would have been amazing amazing it would not have solved any of my problems with the last 20 no. minutes but it would have certainly been entertaining bring in that character and bring in another character as i said before and that ending is an all-timer <laughs> that's the movie that yeah that's an interesting ending right there that's the movie that i thought i was going to see when i watched the trailer yeah um, and, and and I feel like now we're giving away too much spoilers, but the, the ending was the same as I imagined. It just didn't feature the people I thought it was going to feature. It's just that ending is so like the movie is about the difference between old Hollywood and new and, you know, America growing up and growing into the next era. And that ending is a gigantic step backward on mm-hmm. all of those fronts. And I yeah. don't understand it. It's ridiculously misogynistic in especially like, and I think again, like I'm sure Tarantino loves it because of, you know, it's someone gets to live, but it's, ah, it, it, it doesn't play that way. It doesn't. Final point. And this is something that I think it's there, but I'm not sure. And I just want to get your thoughts on it for a guy who is so obsessed with cinema and loves the art of movies. He focuses a lot on television in this movie. What do we think is going on there in terms of Quentin Tarantino's thoughts on television, whether it's the television of old, television of today? Do we think there's anything there? Is it just another thing that doesn't stick to the wall? Uh, I Again, I think like he's saying something about how TV is sort of a step below movies and how it kind of killed movies and how it kind of killed movies. But then, and then the ending just fucks all that up. <laughs> I think like, I, really, I, I want, like I desperately want to be like, just enjoy living in Tarantino's version of this particular space at this particular time. But then I can't turn off my, that critic part of my brain. That's just like, but what does it mean? What is he trying to say? And it's it's either so muddled or he just doesn't know what he's trying to say or I it, it doesn't work. I think this was one of those things that someone should have said no to him on. I think he was so he was born in 1962. So this takes place in 1969. So he's about seven in the real world at that point. And so he would have grown up watching these TV shows. And that would have been his first introduction, along with going to the movies, of, you know, what the world of cinema, whether it's TV or movies, is like. And I think he has a lot of respect for that. And I think it he has very soft spot in his heart 
for those old TV shows and what they meant and how they affected uh, the movie industry and the public consciousness, whether for the good or the bad. And I think he really wanted to give us a peek into how those, what those were like, how they affected him, how they affected the movie industry, and also just to remake it and show his own version. And I think it's one of the poorer choices in the film because it either needs to be more of it or almost none of it. So that's kind of what I thought about the the use of TV in the old Westerns. All right. Josh, what is the grade out of 10? Man. First of all, once again, I am a huge fan of Tarantino. I have defended so many of his movies, even some that might be considered to be undefensible. And I think that he is a really interesting filmmaker, but this just really didn't do it for me. So sadly, I have to land at a four out of ten. All right. Katie. Oh, I gave it one for Leo, one for Brad Pitt, and one for the set design and costumes and decoration and all that. So three out of ten. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I was glad this one. Oh, I feel like you just saved me, Katie. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll, wow. I'll get the hate mail, Josh. Don't worry. Dan Bear. I gotta say, I was not expecting grades that low. Um, even for those who didn't like it. Um, I, oh, God. I Like I said, I'm struggling with this one. I'm still struggling with this one. I, on the, I'll, I'll say it with this. On the whole, I liked it more than I didn't. So that immediately earns it at least a passing grade for me. Um, I I think both Pitt and DiCaprio are just fantastic. Um, there are certain scenes in this that are so 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 good. Even if on the whole, the movie doesn't uh, it doesn't live up to the best of Tarantino's work for me, and while the end makes me uncomfortable and I sort of don't wrestling with what, you know, I think the movie is about and what it's trying to say. I, Oh God, I am, I'm stuck between a six and a seven and I know you hate half. No, I, I, I genuinely think you're a six <laughs> on the NBP scale of things. I like, and based on everything that you've said so far, I can't see that being a seven because uh, well, yeah. I know I'm more positive than you on this and I am a seven. <laughs> but that's, like the, the parts that I liked about this movie, I really, really liked. Yeah. It, it's a question of how much the bad things in this movie soured it for me. And, and I I is it enough to go from like a seven or eight to a six? I, maybe I don't know. Okay, fine. I'll I'll I'll, I'll stay. I'll stay at six. I yeah, time six may to me sounds like mixed positive, which sort of seems yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, like time yeah. may push it up to a seven, but for now, I guess a six is yeah. And I'm a, and I'm a very weak seven. And I actually do believe that there is a part of me that on rewatches it, 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 it could, I don't think it'll go up, but I, I think there is a potential chance that it will go down. I, I don't know. What I do know is I do know that I definitely enjoyed, I think, more aspects of it than some other people did. 
I definitely was troubled by the same things that everybody else was troubled by. Uh, but there seem, there's so much here and not all that I think can be necessarily revealed on a first viewing. I, I do believe you need time to let this kind of settle and, you know, ruminate a little bit and then go back, revisit it. I wouldn't say right away. I would give it some time, if anything. But, you know, for me in that instance, then it's like, yeah, I mean, like a seven to me makes sense for me, but. God, if I tell you that there was uh, some stuff in this that really, really bothered me. But at the same time, it wasn't boring. <laughs> no. Most <Okay>. of it. <laughs> so. I, I don't, I had a, I, that, that's one thing I forgot to say earlier. I had a tough time getting into it. The first, I think, 20 minutes or so moved. Yeah. Very slowly and poorly. Yeah. I can understand it's that. It's a summer of slow burn. Honestly, that's kind of what I've experienced most of the summer. It's all slow burns. Yeah, that's true. I'm hoping that our, you know, thoughts on this, you know, being obviously very critical, I do hope that anyone that's listening uh, might be able to hear what we're saying and view it, you know, in a different way. I'm not saying we were trying to change your mind or anything like that, but I would, I would hope that some people that weren't even thinking of some of the things that we brought up here heard what we had to say, and maybe you're saying, oh, you know what? That might get me to watch movies in general in a different way. You know what I mean? And and granted, everybody wants to be positive and everybody wants to be on the winning side, and isn't it great when it's all sunshine and roses, right? Yes. But I do believe in holding people to a high standard, and Tarantino himself holds himself to that standard. So compared to his other filmography, it's very clear to me that – once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, at least for now, is, in my opinion, uh, bottom three uh, in his filmography. It is yeah, I think it is for me, me too. Yeah. yeah, for me, it is the bottom. I yeah, have, it is I the like bottom for me. All of his other movies more than this one. Significantly more than this one. Right. Alrighty, uh, last segment here. We kind of touched upon it a little bit. Let's go into it a little bit more because I think this is very interesting. The film is still holding a pretty positive score at the time for Rotten Tomatoes and those that love it really, really do love it. Tarantino is an awards magnet. What does this mean for its Oscar prospects? Uh, From a prospect standpoint, I listed on the website Best Picture, Director, Actor, Screenplay, Cinematography, Costume Design, Production Design. Do I think it's actually going to get those nominations? Hell no. (laughs) Absolutely not. But I think that those are on the table. Does anyone think that anything is off the table completely? Does anyone think something else should be there? What are your thoughts? Do we think they're going to try to push Pitt in supporting he yes. is a co-lead. I like yeah, I mean I co-lead. But you know, in this day and age, yeah, they're not gonna put him leads lead. of films can be pushed in supporting because they're slightly less than the star lead. Like that's so well, frustrating to me. I know. Nobody I gets agree. to be the star but Leo. We know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, yeah, they're gonna push Pitt supporting. They yeah. are and I feel like and I it's weird, but I honestly feel like if they do, he stands a really good chance at getting that sort of career acting win. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I think Pitt and Leo are the ones who have the best chances of anyone winning anything off of this, except maybe like we talked about uh, the set design and costumes. I think those uh-huh. kind of technical stuff, it does well on that. But I don't even know. I think there's a world where it 
gets nominated for Best Picture, but I just could never see it winning. There's just no. too many other great things that are coming out. This is not a this is not like a weak year for pictures. So yeah, and it's not it doesn't have the same sort of across the board. This is a big moment for Tarantino, like Inglorious Bastards had. Yeah. You know? I mean, that said, if it does really well at the box office and it looks like it's going to, I think it may have a stronger chance at Best Picture than we may think. And Quentin Tarantino is always a threat in screenplay. So, yeah. I yeah. would be genuinely upset if he got nominated for screenplay for this. I would be shocked if he didn't. Oh, and one more thing I would throw out is I know that we weren't high on the cinematography, but Robert Richardson is a yeah. darling of that branch. And yeah. many oh, times he, okay? he is he has been snubbed by mm. like ASC and BAFTA and other precursors, and he still manages to slip in. So I wouldn't count out that nomination either. I actually think that this is going to be one of those things where he does get recognized by ASC and maybe BAFTA and so on and so forth. And I think he does miss the Oscar nomination personally. I think that the best chances this movie has at getting nominations are for its costume design and production design. Um, those are the top two for me right now. And then right below that. Yeah. If they do campaign pit and supporting, I'd say he's my number three. And if uh, best actor for some reason is not a strong year, I could see a welcome back nomination for Leo in this because while that doesn't seem to be like an urgency to want to give him another nomination, especially considering his last movie was his Oscar winning performance, I could very easily see a lot of arguments being made for why this is one of his best and we've never seen him do anything like this and he should be recognized for it. Yeah, I got, I got one more question. Mm hmm. Do we think that this would get uh, pushed as comedy at the Globes? Oh, man. Good question. I think it will. It's more a comedy than a drama. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. This isn't like a get out situation where it's like, okay, that's weird. But because if it does, that seems like an easy win for Leo at the Globes, who have already given him like three awards at this point. Yeah. You know, you win a, a Globe. That's a good indication that. You've got some buzz behind you to get into an Oscar lineup. That's a really, really good observation there, Josh. And I am inclined to agree with you that I do believe that this would be pushed uh, in the musical comedy category. Although, yeah, because, I mean, when you think about it, the most serious moments in a movie uh, are littered with laughs. Yeah. Right. There's all there's a comedic tinge to every moment in this Yeah. Film. Yeah. True. I mean, even the moments of suspense... Uh, sometimes, like that scene on the ranch, it's it, it, it's funny actually <laughs> at times, um, and of course the ending. Uh, like I said, my my audience that I saw it with thoroughly entertained. I was a little disturbed by that to a certain extent, but I can see what Tarantino was going for. I just thought it was heavily misguided. So, yeah, yeah, uh, comedy musical it is. So. We'll have to uh, wait and see. Does anyone else think that uh, any other possible nominations are in there at all? I, I like I can't see editing. I can't see the sounds. No. Uh, well, I don't think the sounds, but is it his usual crew that worked on the sound work? Because they tend to get nominated a lot also. Like, um, oh, what's the guy? Wiley Stateman, I think, is a guy mm-hmm. who usually works on his films. He tends to get nominated for a lot of Tarantino stuff. You know, it was interesting to me, though, because if I remember correctly... Django got a nomination for sound, if I recall. 
Yeah, sound editing, I think. Yeah, and Glorious Bastards uh, also got nominations as well. Hateful Eight was one of those ones where I was actually surprised it didn't get like a nomination uh, because of the, you know, the snow and uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. But this is his most, like I said, uh, sorry, this is his least violent movie. There's no like major like gun battles or anything like that in this. So I, I, yeah, I can't see it happening. Yeah, I mean, but sometimes the branch just has to know who worked on the film, you know? Yeah. And who knows? They may really love the flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Josh, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Katie? You can find me on Twitter at KT underscore Schaefer. Dan Bear. Convince me that this film was good at Twitter at Dance and Dan on film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. <clears throat> God, I'm like I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio this episode. I'm just constantly <laughs> like. <laughs> you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, Castbox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Write us a comment. Rate us five stars. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback as well as your support. Which, if you subscribe for one dollar minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content, including our full length review going back to look at the 2015 Quentin Tarantino movie, The Hateful Eight, which will be dropping this week. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And we shall see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.